Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the Mist History Podcast. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Dominique Ryle, an expert historian of modern European studies, nationalism, the Balkans, Italy, and more at the University of Miami. During the episode, we discuss her experience being questioned at the murder trial of a fellow historian in 2018 and how it reflected a lack in public understanding of what modern historians do. We also discuss the pros and cons of nationalism, the concept of the Balkans, and how identity plays a role in highly diverse societies. So, Dominique, uh, thank you very much for being here. Uh, We have actually already had the chance to talk one time before, albeit on a different podcast. So to get right into it, could you kind of explain how you met William Klinger and who he is? Yeah, so William Klinger was a historian. He was my age. And in in the ex-Republic or the current Republic of Croatia and the um, ex-Yugoslavia, cohort really matters because if you were born before, at an age where you could have been in the war or you saw the war, you experienced the war um, in all of the countries of ex-Yugoslavia, it kind of marked you of that generation and people who were even five years younger felt like our generation and and William and I were both born in the early to mid seventies. Yeah. So, so if you're from the generation of people who were young, but you know, high in high school or beginning college, um, during the Yugoslav Wars, you just always felt an affiliation to each other. And I met William Klinger, who was, again, as I said, a historian in the archives in Rijeka, Croatia, which is um, a place I was writing, uh, trying doing research for the book that I eventually wrote. I met him because the archivist uh, wanted me to meet him. And so after the archives were closing, the head archivist, uh, Boris Zakoshek, uh, said, oh, Dominique, I want you to meet someone. And he introduced me to William. And we went and got coffee. And uh, William then told me you know, a little bit about himself, that he went to the European University Institute which for his PhD, which is in Europe, probably the, one of the most prestigious places you can get your PhD. It's state-sponsored, but incredibly competitive and only a certain number of people from each country are allowed to go there. He wrote his dissertation. Um, uh, I think part of it was written in English, uh, but he worked, he learned languages. He lived in many countries in order to do that research sponsored in part by the European University Institute. And he started telling me about the work he was doing. And it was very clear that he was doing work that was much more analytical, cutting edge, deep research than most people who I don't know in the region do, right? So there's the kind of local historian that tells uh, the story of that building and that that serves the community, but and it serves historians later who want to write about it, but it never really reaches a bigger audience. William Klinger was writing the way historians, he was writing about topics and doing kinds of research that was that were much broader. And, you know, he, we didn't know each other, but we quickly recognized we had very similar com- uh, interests. And so whenever I was in the United States and had a question about a source or something, I would email him and ask him and he would answer almost immediately with far more information than I could have ever hoped to expect. I think we had coffee twice and lunch once. So we were not friends, but we were that kind of colleague that counts on each other to care about the same issues and help each other. And he was in a very bad professional position. He uh, he lived in Italy, on the borders between Italy and Croatia. He had a wife and two kids, and he worked in a, in a kind of history society in Istria, but that was like a part-time job that didn't pay well. And, and I only found out after his death that... Um, he was also working uh, ex- like extra shifts on a, as a freeway attendant. I mean, it, it's just incredible, right, that someone who has his PhD. And he started asking me about how he could make his life better, like how he could get a better job, how could he get the kind of recognition that in many ways he did deserve and he wasn't getting. And so I would send him emails and indications of, well, you should apply for a postdoc, 
um, in the United States or in Germany or in Britain. Uh, so you get more, uh, you know, exposure to people who write European history and not just regional or local history. And uh, that will help you when you apply for jobs because you'll have it on your CV. And, you know, maybe you'd like to apply for an editorship for a journal or, or, or a prize committee. Um, that will help you get more exposure. And uh, I was just telling him all these, like, for an American, very normal things, but he was never trained that way. And I didn't hear very much of it, and I never got, and I said, I'm happy to write a letter of recommendation for you, but there are much fancier people people out there who I'm sure would be happy to write for you, and I gave him a list of fancier people. And I never heard anything about this. And then I he sent me an email right a couple months before his death saying he was coming to the United States and that he had gotten a job in New York and I had assumed he had gotten a fellowship at the Remark Institute at NYU because I had encouraged him to apply for that. And the people at NYU really care about Mediterranean history. They really care about European and, history. And where were you working at the time? I was in my, at the University of Miami, where I still am. So he said, well, maybe we'll see each other when, you know, when, I, when I come to New York. That's the last I heard. And then I got a phone call from a very good friend of mine, also historian, Emily Grable at Vanderbilt University, saying, you're in the news. And I'm like, what? And he, uh, William Klinger had been shot in the middle of the day in early January, I think. And um, the killer had said that he had killed William Klinger out of self-defense because he had fallen into a rage because he had left his family in order to have an affair with me. And he, this, this killer like created this whole crazy story. And, and then I saw that the, the police were writing me and I immediately wrote the New York Times and said, get this off your newspaper, this is all a lie. And I, I felt so bad that his wife and children would, would be affected by this terrible man's lie. And uh, I, I, you know, they immediately um, took my name out, but they left this insinuation in the in the article. And uh, then the police asked me to prove that the killer was lying, and that took one second. I mean, just showing my credit card bills, and I gave them all the email exchanges between us, and it was just kind of like a, a killer who just makes stuff up and doesn't realize how much a liar who makes stuff up and doesn't realize how easy it is to prove a lie. Uh, that insinuation somehow would set him free. And this whole thing then turned into months of the, the, uh, the, 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 the prosecutor asking me if I would be willing to testify at the trial in New York City and the police asking me to give more and more information, all of which I was happy to do. And eventually I was called, I think a year or so after the killing, um, to to give testimony, and um, that was strange. They the the New York City, uh, you know, the they, they New York City paid for me to fly from Miami to go to Q Q and New York City and Q Gardens and go and they put me up in a weird hotel that they always use for witnesses, and there was this whole system of 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 coupons like that you give your witnesses so they don't have to spend money but you don't want to give them money and the hotel uh people know not to ask any questions because it, and the whole thing was insane i get there and i get called in to the to to testify and they start asking all the questions that i just described you know how do you know him and you know did you have a special relationship or something? All of which I said, no. And then they asked this crazy question about what is an archive? Because I said, uh, we met in the archive. And then, th then the whole trial changed into what, how is it possible this man was so prominent or so successful in terms of production as a historian, but was so desperate and didn't know what to do in order to how to get a job and how to make money. And, and I, I was so struck by the whole experience of trying to explain what we do because we, we kind of, as, his, as academic historians, uh, we live in a world where we think many of us complain about it, but we all know, you know what the deal is. And so <laughs> explaining it to a jury, who knows what these uh, residents of Queens, New York, 
you know, do, uh, what our profession is, uh, was kind of eye-opening to me. And that's why I wrote this, uh, this kind of strange little piece that came out a year or two ago, uh, about the, the trial and the, and the killing. And, and I don't know if you agree, Luke, I think that the real danger wasn't, wasn't just the crazy guy who killed this, killed this man to steal, you know, $70,000 or whatever. It was more how unarmed we all are by not knowing more about this profession, what we do, what it takes to do it, um, what, what being professional means, uh, what mean, what it means to have an employment. Um, and so that's, that was why I wrote that article. And, and I am still shocked by how little we all know. Yeah, the, I, I had initially read this before we had our first conversation. And mm -hmm. I was really curious to talk about it because you wrote an article, I think, like three years after the trial had taken place in 2021. Right. And you kind of use it to show how not only did this event happen and someone was able to be taken advantage of in this way, but also show that uh, even though you were brought in maybe at first to disprove your relationship with this individual, it turned into you kind of serving as the history expert and explaining yeah. to the judge and the jury how this Croatian historian that had a lot of pedigree already could be lured away from his family in Europe for a non-existent job and apartment in New York City. And yeah. at what point... So it starts off with the New York Times releasing an article and your friend letting you know that you were mentioned in it. I assume that creates a lot of anxiety right away, even if you're not worried that they uh, <laughs> will see you improperly as the culprit, but still just having to find a way to clear your name, essentially. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I mean, my first concern was for his family. The idea that you lose your husband and your father is is bad enough. The idea that you lose your husband and your father because of he's 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 cheating or that he's gone crazy around leaving his family that just just made me so upset. I just wanted that. I mean, I didn't know. I don't. I didn't know anything about William Klinger's private life. I knew he was married, but I didn't know you know anything. So in just, it was my imagination of what it would be like to be a wife or a child and have not only the loss, but then also the story, which I knew wasn't true. Uh, that really, that was my first anxiety. My, it wasn't about what people thought about me. My boyfriend at the time was like, what is this? <laughs> and I'm like, we were together <laughs> when this happened. Did, I, I, what, did you reach out to his wife uh, before the trial no, took place? No, I, I I didn't. I asked the um, prosecutor if I should, and she said it wasn't necessary. That that the that and you know again, my, my mother died a week before the trial, so I was a little kind of very, um, you know, I was happy to go there in order to do my duty, but I was also very emotionally raw. And and the prosecutor knew it, and she kept on thanking me for coming in that circumstance. And uh, she, I said, should I reach out to her? And, and she said, you know what? You don't have to. She knows it's not true. I'll send her the transcripts. You know, it's fine. Um, I, you know, I don't know her. Uh, I know that she has worked with people and they've made a documentary in Croatian and Italian, um, uh, not just a memorial to her, her husband, but also to the d different, um, there's all these, uh, uh, conspiracy theories about why he was killed. So maybe it wasn't just about the money. Maybe it was about politics or all this stuff. So uh, they made a like a YouTube documentary about him. I don't know if it's still live uh, about showing that all those conspiracy theories are another way to besmirch his name. If I read through the yeah, original yeah. Times article and one of the uh -huh. theories that it references is that he had been killed for some reason because he was doing research on Tito. And yeah, yeah. He had just published a book on Tito. Um, what I did mean, what did you what did you think had happened? To me. 
but when you first found out about everything? I had no idea. I thought maybe someone randomly killed him. Like I, I just, I couldn't understand how, I didn't understand why he was in New York and I didn't know. Like, wouldn't you write your, one of the only American people you know and say, hey, I'm in New York if you're ever around. Like, I did, that never happened. Um, but also, um, so I just assumed somehow he had gotten caught in some kind of, I don't know, things that you see on television. I, I just didn't, I didn't have any theory. I didn't know. And then all these articles started coming out in Italy and in Croatia that were immediately within a day of his death um, that were giving all these theories. And all of them sounded one more crazy than the other. But, but again, and th maybe this is shifting a little, I'm, I'm not part of those worlds. I go to them. I speak their language, but I don't live there. I don't know all the inner workings of, you know, the politics and, who knows who hates who and who knows who. And, and in some ways I'm kind of happy to be a little ignorant about that stuff. I get to play the dumb American. Uh, so I, I didn't know Klinger's relationship with any of the political worlds, either in Croatia or in Italy. And it all sounded crazy to me because I always just thought of him as a dorky historian like me. I, I never, you know, I never thought of, I don't think anyone's trying to kill me, uh, and I think if I got killed, it was probably because some crazy person shot me randomly. So I just assumed the reason he would get killed is the reason why I would get killed. And the saddest part seems that it was just a matter of him being truly a passionate historian and wanting to believe yeah. that things would be um, better than they appeared in hindsight in the United States. Yeah. But, um, isn't that depressing? It, it, it is, but at the same time, it's kind of inspiring <laughs> that he was he was so passionate about the subject, and yeah. I kind of I do yeah. you do compare yourself a little bit. I do get a similar uh, vibe, for lack of a better term, from you. With <laughs> when you talk about history, it's not just um, like an academic field; it's more so a connection to the world around you. And yeah, I don't know. Connection. I mean, if you met him, he, he was a little different than me. Uh, you know, he wasn't as Californian. As me. <laughs> California <laughs> but, uh, but he definitely loved history more than anything. And uh, he dedicated his entire life to it in a way, probably I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have been working at the, as a toll operator. So how, how I, does I, the historical profession tie back into how Alexander Bonich was able to essentially lure him to the U.S. Yeah. So in Europe, and things are changing, so everything I'm saying might not be true anymore. There's a lot of nepotism of how permanent positions are given out. And there's a lot of someone knows someone and you make a good impression on them and they help you out. And then you... so. I'm assuming he told William, I've got, a, I've got an in and I can get you a gig without knowing that. I mean, I once um, interviewed for a job at Hunter uh, and it was pretty, it was like three different stages. And then they brought me to campus and I had to not just give a job talk, but I had to do all these interviews with different groups. And then I had to like guest teach, uh, you know, it was intense. So the idea that he, he thought he could just come in and get a job at Hunter, I mean, it, it was almost, it was so absurd. You couldn't understand how he could believe it. And yet you could, because that's why he thought he never got a job in Europe. Because he didn't have an in, right? So. And the judge said that Alexander Bonich abused his idea of the American dream thinking that there was a yeah. lot more opportunity over here than he would have had uh, his lack of success so far in Southeastern Europe. But what, how yeah. different are those worlds in academia? And kind of, ha I'm just amazed that there's yeah. such a perception of a difference. What, what is it in reality? How much connection is there? Okay. Again, everything is changing, right? So Europe, uh, European countries all differently are, changing their um, their protocols and how things happen and things are getting much more structured than they than they were in the good old, quote unquote good old days um, and in the United States things are getting much harder than they used to be 
and not because things are looser, but because they're just fewer jobs. So what it was like for William when he and I both went up for jobs at the same time, which was in the like in around 2005 or 2007, there were in the United States lots of jobs in European history. I think I had, I can't remember, I think I had 13 a, interviews and three on-campus interviews my first year on the market. That's un, that's unbelievable now. I think there's four or five jobs that are tenure-track, uh, research-oriented jobs in European history at all. So like just to think about how different it is now, back when he was on the market and I was on the market, someone with a good CV doing interesting work had a chance with good letters of recommendation and coming from a fancy school to get a job based on their own merit. And when he was on the market, the chances of getting a job were very related to who's, you know, who is your baron? Like, <laughs> what were the networks of, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And, and you know, kissing up and working for free and doing all this stuff. So his, his opportunities and my opportunities when we were at the beginning of our careers were much easier for me than they were for him. By the time he came to New York, things had really closed down in the United States and things had not opened up that much in Europe. So the, the kind of very dire opportunities of Europe when he was on the market were more similar in the United States by the time he came to New York and got killed. Um, I don't know. I, I think that it's always been a profession that was hard. I never went into it thinking I would get a job. I always went, well, if I don't get a job this year, then I'll have to like go to law school or do something like that. I never... It was never a guaranteed job, um, but it is for graduate students today in history in the United States, um, they are very aware of how difficult it is and how, how low the chances are. And in Europe, especially in Italy and Croatia, um, everyone is very aware of how low the chances are in their own countries uh, too. I'm curious what you would say or what is your opinion on the role of a historian? What should a historian be versus what historians are nowadays? Well, I mean, we are teachers, writers, and researchers, and administrators uh, to a certain extent. And it's always been like that. I mean, it is very rare that a historian is just a researcher or just a writer. And I think that that's a really good combination. I think that going into a classroom and making people question what they think the world is around them and where it came from is helps you be a better reader and, and a writer and researcher. So I think that what a historian has been up until this point has been a kind of pretty sweet gig in which you got up in the morning and you didn't have that nihilistic vision that you're, no one cares about what you're doing because you were going into a classroom and working with students from all ages, from all backgrounds, um, who were all studying different things, and you were in communication with them. And that felt, that feels, and that felt really good. It made you feel like you were doing something. And then you would have these passions about trying to learn stuff and trying to explain why the thing you're learning is interesting in reading and writing and researching that made you feel creative, right? That made you feel like you were you were, you were, yeah, you were creating a new cultural imaginaries of, of the past or of what the present is re relation to is to the past. I think today it's getting a little harder to speak optimistically because it is ever harder to get the time off to do research or the subsidies to conduct the research Fewer people are reading history, so publishers are less interested and in you have to, it's much more um, commercialized than it used to be. University presses are being put under enormous uh, pressure. Universities are being pressured to cut investments in the humanities. And so what's happening now for a lot of historians is that they, they're wondering if this is what they signed up for. There are exceptions to this rule, but I think that 
if you speak to most historians in the United States today who aren't independently wealthy, uh, there's a, there's kind of a crisis going on of, of what are we what are we doing? Like, are we are we teachers only with with a dissertation we wrote that we luckily got to turn into a book, but we'll never write another one because we'll never have that kind of support again? Or are we administrate? There's there's a crisis going on, and I I, I hope that it gets resolved. Obviously, the, again, the Californian that I am, I hope it gets resolved in a way that we know what we're doing. But right now it's feeling a little, it's a little scary. Um, the two-sidedness of being yeah. a teacher and also a researcher has always interested me because on one hand, you're trying to mm-hmm. help the students find the answers. But as a mm-hmm. researcher, you're trying mm-hmm. to find the answers yourselves or maybe even the question to be asked. So you, you've published two books at this point, both of which... I would say mm-hmm. on different scales, look at nationalism and kind of the pros mm-hmm. and cons of it and how it's developed in Southern Europe. To any extent, do you feel that your search for an understanding of multinationalism through those two books kind of reflects a desire in some way for what if during those eras, these ideas of unifying around nationalities or like embracing the plurality overcame more so these more traditional mm-hmm. narratives of, oh, yeah, all these different nationalities rose up and kind of had feuds with one another and there was just fighting. Yeah, I, and I do think that what I've been interested in so far is when and why community identity matters and and gets formed in different ways and changes. I think that that's really interesting to me. And I also think that what I'm most afraid of is when people think it's predetermined how communities will respond to a situation or who would be part of that community. I think that's a very, very dangerous, like the idea that French people are like this or Russians are like that. It, 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 it scares me when, when the idea of these communities that have these names that are based on histories and, and traditions and, you know, and context and whatever, I don't like it when they get almost racist, you know, where it's like a DNA of nationalism that will make communities behave a certain way. So I think that up until this point, I've, I've been trying to really show there's a creative force in a moment of people that they make their national communities mean something to, to, to respond to their fears or their needs or you know, their interests, in, but it all gets so cliched, right? It all starts sounding the same. And so we can easily start forgetting why things happen and, and just assume that they were, that's just how it was going to be. And unfortunately, um, in the early 20th and mid 20th century, a lot of the, um, the powers that be did have very cliched ver- visions of especially communities in Southern Europe, but Africa, Asia, Latin America, and so uh, they they just assumed these communities would behave that way, thereby limiting their freedom of movement, action, determination, and thereby, you know, creating precisely the cage <laughs> that they said these people were encaged in mentally. So I don't know. I um, it's it's I, I think that the fear of continued violence around the idea of nationalism has definitely been one of the major. Uh, thrust to my research. So you would definitely lean more towards the side that, well, let me just pose the question. Would you say that nationalism exists more so as something for individuals to identify with and come together? Or is it ultimately going to be more harmful as that community is mobilized towards a certain idea, which may not be good? Well, I teach a course, it's like a uh, lower division, so for freshman and sophomore course called Nationalism, um, Love Thy Brother, Hate Thy Neighbor. And in it, I show all the good things that nationalism can do, and then also all the bad things it can do. So what is nationalism? Nationalism is the civil rights movement. Nationalism is uh, when there's a hurricane, the pe- people phoning in money from all over a country or to help those in need because they feel connected. 
um, nationalism is uh, the idea that poor people and rich people are the are equal in a community. These these are the precepts of the nation, right? You're it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're you're a member of that nation. Those are pretty cool ideas. I love those ideas. Um, they're anti-feudal. <laughs> they're highly democratic. And they can and often were mobilized for justice. But nationalism can also be exclusionary, xenophobic. You're not one of us. We don't want to help you. Or the fact that you're here endangers us. It can be both. And in fact, the same national community could have had some of the, what I would consider most admirable moments of nationalism and some of the most despicable. It's both possible. It's what you do with your feeling of community that is important. It's not the idea that a national community is the anchor to how you organize your life that's necessarily the problem. It's what you do with it. Do you think that the European Union is an organization that promotes a newer idea of like continental nationality or like European nationality? Or do you think that it's a bit more scattered than that? I think it, I think that one day, hopefully it could. I think until now, it's been a very federative idea. So it's, you know, when you're watching the World Cup and you're like, everyone's all over the world is watching the same thing and they they're all responding to the same thing. It gives you this feeling of camaraderie. And that feels really great. But it's all about rooting for national teams against each other. <laughs> you know, it's all about actually I, identifying being part of something by being separated into different leagues, right, or different teams. And in many ways, how the European Union has been structured and how it's promoted itself has been based on the nation, Right, so it's all it's it's the United Nations of Europe in some ways, right? It's it's Italians are Italians who are in the EU. I I know a very few people who identify them as EUians. They might identify themselves as Europeans, but that existed before the EU, and that was usually about not being Asian or not being African or not being American, not not about the EU. So I think the EU has tried to emphasize inclusionary politics and inclusionary identities. And I, I, I really do respond well to that. But I don't think it's created a Europeanness as a, on an identity level yet. Or maybe it, it is now with, I think maybe COVID did something or I don't know, maybe, maybe it is and I don't know yet. And I'll be embarrassed about saying what I've just said. It's a, uh, no, it's from, from an American perspective, I feel like there's a lot of, I'm kind of torn between rooting for a more combined Europe and a more cooperative Europe mm -hmm. and seeing how that all works out. But then mm -hmm. there's also this idea that's been promoted for so long, especially after World War One, where each uh, nation or group of people or ethnicity or religion kind of gets their own bit of land and then that will stabilize right. things because everyone will kind of have access to their own sovereignty. But it, is, yeah. it seems like there's also no point in which everyone can achieve that level of sovereignty that they desire. No one can be given it. And often it's taken away. Yeah. I mean, I, I have EU citizenship through having Italian citizenship. And I'm so grateful for it because it allows me a kind of freedom of movement and choices that because I, I have dual dual citizenship, but if I if my Italian citizenship didn't give me EU citizenship, it would still give me more mobility than just having one citizenship. But it wouldn't give me what it what it gives me through the EU, right? So 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 much of of being uh, of having an EU national citizenship now also is a and I guess what we're seeing with Brexit is is the other side of that. Um, it, there's no doubt that the EU creates incredible opportunities for people who are who are mobile enough or interested enough to use them. Um, but it also gives a sense of powerlessness, and you know the big bad Eurocrats are the ones that are ruining our world. That I think probably explains a lot of what's going on uh, politically in most European countries right now. And. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. I hope something good happens. 
<laughs> well, with that, I feel like it's good to bring up the Balkans. It had to come up at some point. I, uh, I, I asked the, uh, the followers of Miss History beforehand if there's any questions they want, oh, no. they want yeah. asked. And uh, I'm, I'm saving... I'm saving the oh, second God. batch for the end of the conversation, but <laughs> a lot of people were asking about where the idea of the Balkans even originated and yeah. why it's such a confusing area for people from outside yeah. of it. How did all of these different nations arrive and why were there periods where there was a lot of unity? Um, mm. How was someone like Tito able to kind of... Uh, balance those nations but nowadays you see that there's more and more breakup since the 90s how do you start to even explain the Balkans wow well I mean that's like the hardest question there's a wonderful book um, called imagining the Balkans by Maria Todorova and she basically tries to give us a history of when did this term start meaning something and how that the meaning of that term kept on changing, and what were the politics of promoting that term, and and in her in her work, it, it sounds like maybe only the Bulgarians really were proud of the idea of the being the Balkans, and that in general it was a derogatory term used to orientalize uh, Southeastern Europeans especially those who had been or were under the Ottoman Empire. Emily Grable, uh, this historian I'd mentioned earlier at Vanderbilt, has, has written some wonderful pieces recently um, about uh, why Muslims have never been considered Europeans. And uh, a lot of that she is, is the largest Mus uh, indigenous Muslim communities in Europe over the last five centuries or six centuries or seven, I mean, who knows when things begin, um, have, we're from the Balkans, we're living in the Balkans. And so externalizing Muslim communities is, is the same as externalizing Southeastern Europe from a Christian European vision, regardless of the fact that there were so many Christians living in the Balkans that, you know, why are you, why is Muslimness external? You know, it, it goes hand in hand. I think that what Tito did is, and while a lot of people didn't trust his vision of like some creation of some federative uh, Balkan, you know, it, it was like, it was a, and again, this is not my period and I am not an expert on this, but I, I kind of see it as when, when, when the idea of Balkans is, is seen as positive, it's usually against empires, right? It's against, it's kind of, you know, this, the third way, the, the non-aligned movement is, is against the Soviet Union and the United States taking over. And, and when the Balkans feels like a special category is, is when the Ottoman Empire is getting pushed out and the Habsburg Empire hasn't taken over yet. And there's, there's this idea, and it falls apart almost immediately in the Balkan Wars, but <laughs> this idea of, of we have, uh, we have, a, we have we're, we're against the empire. So the, the, and, and again, this is not my feeling. I'm probably saying things that are gonna make people angry. But it's, um, I think it's impossible but, but not to say anything to make someone not to, but, but personally for me, uh, it's precisely because historically has been seen as a negative term that to me, it has no negative connotations whatsoever. It's a geographical term. Um, I prefer to use it than all the other terms um, because many, few people would consider Slovenia part of the Balkans, uh, but, but it was part of Yugoslavia. And so, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to any of that stuff. I I don't mind the word Balkans. I use it all the time as as the peninsula, the Balkan peninsula. Um, but I understand people who hate it. And, and they are hating it for these things. I don't know if many Americans today realize um, it is a loaded term that usually used to mean, for most people, backwards uncivilized, unwestern. And, and when you think about it in those terms, you can understand why people 
don't like the term, don't like being determined that de defined that way or identified that way. And then other people don't care at all. And they're like, what's wrong with the Balkans? You know, Chivapi. Like, <laughs> so like, would, would you say the people that tend to be more against the term, would they define themselves first by their nation or how, how would uh, they yeah, define it themselves? Go, it could go anyway. It could go anyway. It could be about their national identity. It could be about their religious identity. It could be about their their um, if they consider themselves Mediterranean, you know, if they consider themselves Central European, uh, it, it, you know, it can it can really go any way. Um, but the aversion to the term is usually around how denigratory it has been historically, politically, economically, and culturally. In in again, it for me. I, I don't feel that the Balkans is is a bad a bad world, so I don't see I don't see it. I, I mean, I love the Balkans, so uh, it's yeah. It, it means what people know. It means if you know a lot of history, you know how that word was used. You kind of flinch at it, and and then you also there are people who own that word, even though they know that history, and they're like whatever. To to what extent did these different states cooperate or exist within the Habsburg Empire when it was a more collective system, it seems? They didn't have uh, independence, these states within the Habsburg Empire. So um, the, the parts of the Balkans that were part of the Habsburg Empire, Hungary, Croatia, parts of, not really Bulgaria, but Romania, um, ex-Yugoslavia in general, not the whole thing, but parts of it, they were all separated and they were all parts of different areas. So for example, Slovenia was in the Austrian empire while Croatia was in the Hungarian kingdom, but Croatia, which today includes Dalmatia, Dalmatia used to be a different kingdom than Croatia. And Dalmatia was in the, in the Austrian part, but Croatia was in the Hungarian part, but it was autonomous. I'm trying, I, everything I'm saying here is true. There were also military zones that were autonomous, that were direct, the whole thing. So it's the idea of how much of these states cooperate within the empire. They weren't states. They were the incorrect term, but the closest to probably what we understand is they were provinces within a very confusing, multi-layered empire where they were handled within the sub-centers or the peripheries that they were in. And, and a lot of people who resented that, you know. And during it's during this time that your first book takes place, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And that's centered around this idea of Adriatic multinationalism. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of explain what that idea was? So before the Napoleonic Wars, so before like the beginning of the 1800s, um, around the Adriatic, the, the part of the Mediterranean Sea that goes to Venice, there was the Republic of Venice, which kind of worked like a maritime empire and controlled most of the coastlands of the Adriatic Sea and parts of what we consider today uh, Greece. And um, when, when the Napoleonic Wars were over, the Republic of Venice was dissolved. Venice was, um, was, was absorbed within the Habsburg Empire and all of its, and all of its Adriatic territories were also uh, absorbed into the Habsburg Empire as well as the Republic of Dubrovnik or Ragusa. So what happened is one kind of metropole maritime imperial system dissolved and it was much of it was given to the Habsburgs and what the Habsburgs decided to do was separate out the parts so Venice was part of Lombardy Milan and and Trieste was uh, this port town in the upper Adriatic was made kind of a free a, a semi like a semi-independent free port and then uh, the coast of Dalmatia was made its own kingdom but without any provincial you know, representation was pretty much organized by the military. And so everything kind of got split up for the first time. And, and all of these different territories, which had all been under this Italian cultural Catholic Venice, 
now was under this empire that had been ruling for a, quite a while, a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious world. And so you start seeing people in Dalmatia going, well, why do we have to speak Italian? <laughs> the empire is, the, the, the Vienna is mostly German speaking. The Italians are under Vienna. The majority of our population speaks uh, uh, a, what I would call South Slav language or dialect. So, so there is a change that happens in the Adriatic where you have these movements, which is happening throughout Europe, of nationalism about like our, our state and our world should be organized by our values and our language and all this stuff, except the Adriatic now was multi, was now not part of a one language, one religion system. And, and so there was this idea of some, some ideas that they use is like, we'll be like the Hansa, like the league in the North Sea in medieval and early modern times, or maybe we'll be like America, right? We'll be, we'll have like lots of different states that all have different, you know, religions or identities. And, and so we'll be, we'll be kind of federative in our nationalism. Would you say that the people that were happier with these new arrangements were the people in charge or were people on the ground typically happy as well to be part of this larger system? Uh, well, the people in charge in charge were not, were working directly for the empire and some of them invested in the people that were pushing for this. I think the people that like this idea and it didn't last, it lasted like 10 years or something and then kept on getting re re brought up every time people wanted to try something new. Um, the people who, the kind of people who like this were commercial people, merchants, you know, if you have more markets, you can sell. So why are we sticking ourselves only in one community? Uh, you know, literary people, religious people who thought of, you know, if you're a good, you, you know, you should love your brother, you know, this, this idea, there, these romantic thinkers about, yeah, about different tribes make up humanity and, um, and then, strangely enough, illiterate people who are already multilingual and who are, you know, they were traveling and, and use whatever language was most appropriate for the moment. So it, it, it's hard to say who, this is the time of the early 19th century where literacy was very, very low and there was censorship. So it's hard to tell. The book centers around an an Italian Slavic individual who mm -hmm. kind of brought together uh, people from the Slavic background as well as people from the more Catholic Italian background. Mm -hmm. Who was he and what were his goals? He was, um, I'm trying to think of an American equivalent. He was a a lover of words. He he wrote the the most important dictionary of the Italian language. C sorry, could you he, remind me of his name? Nicolo Nicolo Tomaseo. It's a hard name. Nicolo Tomaseo. Yeah, he is considered in Italy like one one of the founding fathers of the Italian nation. He's he's deeply uh, kids in school have to memorize his poems still today. Um, you know he's one of the fathers of 19th century literature. He was ca deeply Catholic, but he was um, very, he was like a social Catholic. He believed in helping the poor and, and what, what is true grace is the downtrodden. And, um, but he was very ambitious. He, he did not come from a rich family. So he had to make his way through his pen. And he was raised um, when the Venetian Republic, this system that I was telling you about that was, uh, or all organized around Italian speaking. He was raised um, in that world. And so when he was a teenager, you can see in his diaries, he, his mother was Slavic speaking. Um, he wanted to get rid of every trace of being Slavic from his cultural background. And then he, he moved, for one reason or another, he moves to Paris and he gets really sick. He gets syphilis, his parents die. He has basically like a nervous breakdown. He, can't, he hates the city and he's poor and he doesn't have any money. And so he moves to Corfu, which is, no, he moves to Corsica, um, which is in the Mediterranean where Napoleon is from. And he, he meets this German guy who's in love with Slavic literature. 
And this German guy says, how do you not know how cool it is to be Slavic? And just basically gives him all these poems and histories about, about the amazing Serb revolution and all this stuff. And he, he has an epiphany that he had been trained to hate himself. And so he then has this new mission of proving that there's beauty in both cultures and, and all cultures. And so he just starts this whole new program in his head of, of trying to make sure that this kind of um, xenophobia uh, doesn't infect the way it infected him. And he, he, he's very famous. He publishes all over the place. And, and then so these other people, and I, the book is really about a group of people, and I only chose six of them, but I had a, like 20 or 30 people that I could have used. Um, they kind of seek him out because they're having very similar ideas too. And so it just turns into this weird circle in the 1840, late 1830s, 1840s of people who are thinking that nationalism can be a force of good as long as you remember that you're not necessarily better than the other nations, right? That to not think that it's good to be Italian because everybody else sucks, but it's good to be Italian because that's what you—that's what makes your heart flutter. But isn't wouldn't it be cool to be Slav too, right? So the, 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 it's this weird moment that happens that I was shocked to find out about because I had always been trained that in the Mediterranean, especially Slavic speakers and Italian speakers, have always been at at at, at you know at crossroads around power and who should control the Adriatic. So it, I got excited when I learned that I had been mistrained. And so I wanted to write a book kind of like him, kind of, <laughs> of, of saying, hey, 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 <laughs> it wasn't always like this. <laughs> and so you think it kind of reflected your own hope for more yeah, unity? Well, it scared me that I had been trained to assume nothing like that happened. And so that's why I did all the research is it really scared me that, and I'm American, like, what is my dog in that fight? You know, my family's background is from Germany. Um, so it really scared me even more because I've not, I wasn't raised by people who were traumatized by the violence of World War II or, or uh, the 1950s and 60s or even the 1990s. So why was I, why did I believe this stuff? That That was kind of more, as a total outsider, why did I believe it? And do you believe that these, like these initial versions of these ideas, are better known today than they were, or um, do you think that it's kind of fading away? I think they're part of a trope now of Mediterraneanism. Um, so there's this idea of the Mediterranean as a natural space of multi ethnic communities, port cities, um, where people not only tolerated living together, but kind of understood that that's why their worlds were better off than places that didn't. Um, and so my book is used um, in those discourses. Um, and there's been, and my that first book came out in 2012. There's been a lot new work and around these issues and, and connecting them to before and after. Um, I think that that's great. I also think that it's a little dangerous to forget there's that other story too that I have been trained on of all the all of the injustices that quite rightly explain why people don't trust each other. <laughs> you know so so I'm a little nervous of my that history getting used as the Adriatic is some kumbaya um, but, because I was trained to expect it would never have been like that. And now I'm a little nervous that in order to um, create, especially with Croatia now entering the EU and parting, being part of Schengen, uh, that there might be some papering over of the other stuff that happened that I was encouraged to focus on. You kind of jump from telling this one story of a a chance at, this kumbaya Adriatic multinationalism where it's on paper, maybe it seems a little bit better than it really is. Then there's also this contrary idea that you come to with Fiume and the Fiume crisis in your second book, mm. where Italian nationalism is kind of what's being promoted on paper. And 
even like the um it's like the precursor to uh, extreme nationalism or fascism mm -hmm. from Italy but you find out in these stories of all these individuals living in the city of Fiume that e even those that are non-Italian are still widely supporting the joining with the Italian country. Right. So kind of where do those lines get blurred between fear of a monarchy, uh, fear of nationality, uh, and the fear of multinationalism and kind of distrust among one another? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's been the first book is a hundred years before the second, right? So the world is really different, um, and communication systems are different, and literacy levels are different, and media savviness is different. So what I think was happening in the the book that that you just mentioned, the Fiume Crisis, which takes place after, immediately after World War One until 1921, is these these people had been living in the Habsburg Empire before that point. They had they were quite good at making um, plays to having greater autonomy, greater greater um, self, you know, pushing forward their interests in their town, economic, uh, cultural, um, by making claims. And their their empire is gone, and they have a lot of need. And the the closest, the richest country next to them is Italy. And many people who live there speak Italian, identify as Italian. They also are good at selling the nation, right? They're good at like, we are the most Italian people ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they, so the big difference in the, the first book is the first book are people trying, na nationalism is just beginning uh, as, a, as a political concept, as a media concept. Um, and these, the guys in the first book are trying to figure out how to engineer an idea of nationalism that's not going to be xenophobic because they see it happening already. They can see that people are saying, oh, I'm so proud to be Italian because everybody else sucks. Um, so they're like, no, let's make sure that doesn't happen. So they're working so hard to, to, to navigate what national community could be. And in the second book, what I see is people navigating survival by manipulating nation. Some people are deeply nationalist, but a lot of people are like, okay, we know how to do this. You know, <laughs> we'll just tell the Italians we're the most Italian come save us. Um, and you know, and to a certain extent they're right. Uh, but, but their situation is a hundred years later where nationalism now is, is, is the only game in town of how you claim why you should or shouldn't be in a country. It's. Uh. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? You know what? Just think of it this way: there are the historians who write about the violence. They write about the wars, and that so, those wars are so important, right? So it's really important to know about World War One and to know about how that changed people's lives. And it's really important to know about fascism and World War II. And it's really important to know about the Napoleonic Wars. But because we know that violence is important, we've jumped all of the other stuff, which is when people are trying to figure out what to do with their communities and their ideas after war. And so the thing that the two books have in common is that they are about those periods that we tend to not study because we don't think they're quote unquote important. But what I think is, it, I, I understand that all the violent stuff is really important. And, and believe me, I mean, I'm, I'm the daughter of, uh, the granddaughter of Germans. So, I mean, I know, and I'm, a, I'm an American citizen. Uh, I, I understand how important violence is. But I also think it's very dangerous if we think that violence is the only important history. And so what the two books have in common is generation, a, a specific moment in time where people think, that they can navigate their worlds to get what they want or avoid what they fear around the idea of national community. It's, I, I, str I struggle to find words because it seems so reflective of history in general. Mm -hmm. And I guess the more pessimistic view of history <laughs> where there's these groups of people and they're trying to find a way to work together, cooperate so they can produce and take care of each other in larger numbers. Mm. But eventually the ideas, whatever they may be of bringing them together 
mm. are commandeered or taken to an extreme that makes other people not a part of it. And that can often lead to violence or very oppressive politics and so on. But in the yeah. end, there's also all of these ideas that come from it that can right. be used to unify people. Yeah. yeah. So again, it could go either way. It really just depends on what the situation is. And that's what makes it so fun to be a researcher, right? So it, what is the difference between someone who writes like one of these grand narratives and they, 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 they piece everything together so it fits together nicely? And those are fun to read, right? They, they're very philosophical. They make you think about, you know, humanity and the world and they give you a nice structure. But someone like me loves to go in there and question everything and figure out, well, did this really mean this to those people <laughs> at that time? You know, like, and, and so I have fun because I get to, I get to, at least I, I feel like I get to learn um, about how important it is for us to paper over what people were actually living in order to create these grand narratives <laughs> and how dangerous that feels to me. I mean, we know this as Americans. We know that the that there were many people living in the in the lands of the United States that were not seen as human beings, people, or worthy, or uh, what the American Revolution was about. And now we question everything, right? We we just we we don't think that what we have to, we are forcing ourselves to not trust the grand narrative, and 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 and, and, and we are learning so much about about the past, at the same time we're learning in the present about the, the pitfalls and uh, seductions of grand narratives, right? They, they help bring people together. They give you a clear vision. They're, they're easy to read. They're, e they're easier to read because they explain why it's all getting put together. But they can also be incredibly dangerous, right? Because they, they then cover up all these other things. In European history right now, um, one of the most exciting fields is, I think, the history of Roma, um, Romani, you know, that the, the, the old uh, politically incorrect word, word was gypsies, because that really uh, questions uh, community identity and statehood. And, and also the, uh, the almost universal aversion to Romani communities throughout Europe. And so what these new scholars who are doing this incredibly complicated research, because Finding finding these communities in on paper form is is is, is has been in, obstructed in many of the same ways as what we've experienced in American history with Native Americans or enslaved people. Romani history for Europeans right now is is feeling like oh my gosh how much have we been telling everything around these national identities um, or again you know. So, so anyways, I'm just saying that I love what I do because I like blowing up the, the sure thing. It makes me feel excited that, there, that we can still learn more. I, I, I would be very bored writing a quote-unquote concise history of Italy. I think I would have a nervous breakdown because I would constantly be thinking, oh my God, I can only think of 10 counterexamples for each example I'm using. Uh, so the kind of mind I have can't, doesn't want to do that big thing. But I think that as long as I concentrate on writing in a way that's about life and that's about all of us aren't identified by the state that we're in, we have other stories too, that maybe people will want to read it and, and they'll get to have some, I don't know. I, I know that's the kind of history I like. No, I agree, I agree completely. I think that's a good way to kind of wrap it up as well mm -hmm. because for all the bad, there's the good. Right. And for all of the pessimism, there's also the optimism. Mm -hmm. And there's the and sneaky, right? Like there's also... Exactly. Sometimes <laughs> the, the the unexpected is what adds color to it and makes it more exciting. <laughs> I mean, I look, right now I'm really into the sneaksters, right? <laughs> the ones that intentionally put us off track. <laughs> Gab Gabriele Denuncio? No, no, no. That guy you could keep. I like, I, like the, <laughs> I like the people that have 17 different identity cards and just use whichever one is more uh, appropriate for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On one end, I feel like nationality is just kind of a... Uh, 
more recent form of ethnicity. If that makes any sense. Uh, that's the the age long question. And don't get me into trouble, Luke. <laughs> I won't get you in any trouble. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I guess I, I I wasn't sure if I was even going to ask this question. I was uh -oh. thinking I would I would put it at the end. Uh oh. Uh, because I had when I put your background on the story for yeah. the followers to put their questions. Yeah. I put expert in Habsburg history. Uh huh. And obviously, whenever you open up the Habsburg idea to the internet, uh -huh. the response is, were they really inbred? <laughs> and how, do, how does that play a role in their actual history? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, with the parting question. So um, I was just at this huge conference in Vienna in early December. I, I call it, my nickname for it is the Habsburg All-Stars. And pretty much everybody at that conference has worked in Vienna heavily in the archives and they all have their favorite restaurant and they all have their stories from when they were graduate students or, or they live in Vienna, you know? So, and they all know, and we, uh, one of my dear close friends uh, and colleagues, Alison Frank Johnson, she, she wanted to go to the Sissy Museum because she wanted to take a picture of Franz Josef Emperor's um, desk um, for um, uh, for the new book that she's writing because she talks about the desk. And another very, very famous, wonderful historian, Tara Zara, and I said, okay, we'll go with you. So we go into the Sissy Museum and it's packed with people and everyone's taking pictures. And, uh, and they both know so much about Habsburg, you know, lore. And I'm like, I don't know anything. And they're like, what? You're a Habsburg historian. And I'm like, yeah. I work on the peoples that some of the peoples that were in the Habsburg Empire. I know almost nothing about all those things. Like I, 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 I cut, you, you know, I don't have my favorite Viennese restaurant. The archivists there don't know me from Adam. And as far as Habsburg lore goes, I study the people who would never have been lucky enough to meet a single uh, high level Habsburg feudal. So I haven't really, I've never taught a Habsburg course. So all to say, I am the worst person to ask that question to <laughs> of the, of the little crazy circle of Habsburg experts. But I do know that everybody that I respect who works on Habsburg history is, is loves the new movie. What's it? Corsage. Uh, they are. I'm not all, sure. Oh yeah. So not the Netflix series, the Empress, but there's a new movie that just came out. It's called Corsage. And it's about sissy. And, you know, they all say, of course, there are, there are fictive elements, but they're like, no, this is really what we would assign in a course. So I will not answer your question, but I will give a, and no one's paying me to do this, a film uh, that if you like Habsburg, understanding these feudal story or the, the emperor's story, you might like that movie. Uh, there's a new book that just came out on a, on photography and painting with the Habsburgs. I'm sure there's a, a, a beautiful like short moment talking about the nose or the chin. Um, and if it is a degenerate disease, there is no doubt there was a lot too much inbreeding. So I can imagine it's all true, but I don't want to say anything that's wrong. How much inbreeding is too much inbreeding? <laughs> well, of course, I'm concerned if I've ever met your mother, no way. <laughs> Uh, all right. So <laughs> that, I feel like that's the best place to end it. That's uh, my lessons. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much once again uh, for being on. It was uh, fun. I hope I wasn't too inquiet. No, no, no. It's perfect as always. Your, your optimism and passion for history and the people that weren't necessarily talked about as much as they should have been, it shines through. Oh, thank so you. thank you. And uh, if if anyone interested uh, in Dr. Dominique Weil's books is listening, her first book, which studied Adrian Adriatic multinationalism, was Nationalists Who Feared the Nation, Adriatic Multinationalism in Habsburg Dalmatia, Trieste, and Venice. And her second book was The Fiume Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire. Thank you. Thank you.